0: grace geltman and weld on the hammer factor take it away boys
1: we got a lot to cover today i know we got to keep it moving um you guys ready then ready let's light this candle
2: all
0: right uh welcome to hammer factor issue number 29 my name is john grace and on the show today i have lewis geltman from the outdoor alliance and john weld co-owner of immersion research Let's get right into it, boys. You are at the outdoor retailer show. Give us all a report.
2: Hmm. Well, I say we were we we're gonna call in. You know, we made big talk about calling in from the show. And <laughs> Lewis and I got together and walked around for a half hour and it was I don't know, just wasn't anything worth talking about, which I guess is kind of news in and of itself.
0: Uh, <laughs> now what do you mean? There just wasn't new products, there just it was just nobody was there? What what do you mean by that?
2: Uh, well it's just crusty. You know, you first,
1: <laughs> no, you came Certainly. in at first, and you Certainly. saw,
2: like, it looked It looked, It looked. looked like there's a lot of exhibitors there, and you're like, oh, it's going to be the same old show. <clears throat> and then you start looking for particular people, like Smiths, not there, Patagonia, not there, Arcteryx, not there, you know, all the bigger brands. And you start to realize, huh, there's really not as many people here. And then you notice, like, the guy last year who was out in a tent selling, like, inflatable motorboat toys wow. is now in a 40 by 40 booth in the main space, which is what I heard of. And then by day three, you're looking around, and you're like, this looks kind of like a Sears department store, like on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> you know, just not, not a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> uh, I mean, the wind was definitely taken out of the sails. Um, the only thing that really stood out as unusual was the protest, uh, which Galtman talked, <laughs> talked me into doing It. <laughs> Um, which I'm glad I did in retrospect because we were walking up to it, and and I don't know how, who organized. Do you know who organized that the protest? Lewis? Our name
1: was on it, but I, I think officially maybe it was Outdoor Alliance, Conservation Alliance, and OIA. But I'm not. Uh,
2: well, fill
0: I, I it. fill our viewers in on this protest. What was the protest all about?
1: Well, it's
2: protest about the governor and bears ears, and you know the you know all that, and you know the whole reason why the show is moving to Denver next year. And then the the idea was to people were going to meet on front of the Salt Palace, you know, the convention center, and then we're going to walk the five or six or eight blocks up to the Capitol, where there'd be some speakers and stuff. And Louis and I started approaching this, and it, for a second it it was like, uh oh, this looks like a nerd party. There's like ten people standing around, and then we kind of around the corner and realized there was like a couple thousand people packing the streets, lining up for this thing. So I thought that was that was pretty cool for sure. Louis, do you want to? Yeah, I thought it
1: was cool. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think that was well described. It was like we're kind of like in this little pack of people and we were kind of the last ones heading up that way. we were like looking around and we we're like, oh, this isn't too bad, like maybe 100 people. And then you see like a mile up the road where people are crossing the road and you realize that we realize that we were kind of at the end of the line that was going back like five blocks. And yeah, I, mean, I think the news said there were something like 3000 people there. They had like the news helicopter and no, no, it was cool. It was good energy. I mean, I'm glad that I think me and Weld are not so much the uh, the protesting types, but <laughs> I think it was uh, it was cool. You know, it was, I think. The, it was, I think the I idea mean, kind of the
2: the, <clears throat> the backstory for me is you know, there's kind of a, a feeling out there, and Lewis you could probably illuminate this better than I can, but there's a feeling out there that the outdoor industry is kind of a bunch of wussies in terms of like political clout and following through with threats. You, you know what I mean? Like we'll kind of roll over for anything. And I feel like this is the first time I've seen like the industry come together and really lay the hammer down and do something. Um, yeah, I think you, that's you know. exactly
1: right. I mean, I got to, to OR and I'm just like thumbing through my phone and I'm reading this Outside Magazine article that's an interview with, uh, with Yvon Chouinard and he calls everyone in the outdoor industry a weenie like a bunch of times. And you have to are, and I think everybody is already i mean to me, that was the most notable thing about the show was the degree to which protecting public lands was not really an optional message to be a part of what you're doing. you know it was you know a lot of these brands had left the ones that were there. I felt like you almost got a little bit of a sense of guilt that they were there, and the idea that you're you have a responsibility to be an advocate on public lands issues seemed to be thoroughly absorbed and you know it was cool to see that protest be as well attended as it was and you know I I don't think anybody's over the moon about the outdoor retailer show leaving Salt Lake and going to Denver I mean it's going to be a pain in the ass it's a hard thing for OIA it's going to be tough for you know locals who don't really deserve to take that kick in Salt Lake City but at the end of the day, I'm super glad to see the outdoor industry like standing up and doing something and saying like enough is enough. We're not just going to talk about this stuff. We're gonna we're gonna act on our values and this stuff. And that was good to see. Killer.
0: So outside of the outside of the uh, march and the protest sex and all that, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I I didn't. Which I
2: d- had nothing. to do. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I got to say, for the record, I did not either, and I, you guys are just, just stirring up shit.
0: Well, I wasn't there, so I don't know anything about it. But, um, so outside of that, I, 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 outside of the march, I didn't miss anything. Was was there, is there no products? Is there nothing there um, to touch on, literally, seriously?
1: I, well, I think you should read your headlines from the, uh, the OR Onion. Uh, just i was walking around the show and i had
2: for the first time in 20 years i had the leisure of kind of like taking my time and checking everything out and i definitely came up with about a dozen or so headlines for an outdoor daily magazine which honestly would be so insider It would only be funny to people who attend the show so i'll save us that uh, boring monologue <laughs> How was the? uh, I made Lewis laugh, which is usually my only goal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How was the SUP representation? It was
2: small. I have to be honest; nowhere near as what I I expected. Um, I think you know one of my headlines actually was from from my magazine was that the show organizers boast uh, that SUP is now forty. percent contained at outdoor retailer with full eradication for 2020 expected. So I think they're moving along in a great direction in that regard. (laughs) I don't know. I think maybe they're going up to this uh, Surf Expo. But honestly, who cares? I mean, mean, who cares what they do? (laughs) And who cares about, about outdoor retailer also? I mean, honestly, I think our listeners have probably had enough of it.
0: Alright, moving on. So we sent out our first uh, email blast to our 160-some-odd loyal newsletter subscribers. It was a uh, little video I made of paddling their Nirvana. Um,
2: (laughs) I can't even read the notes that you put out there on this, well, so... Anyway, I'll point out again for probably the fifth time that the the 10 or 20 minutes before the show is the best part of the show. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of (laughs) ribald humor, jokes being made often at Grace's expense.
1: (laughs) So outside of all this, is this this picture of the the suppers that goes along with the newsletter? Is that there just to? Put a stick in the IME at well, is that, is that just your world now?
0: <laughs> yeah, that was 100% for you guys to see. <laughs> I mean, thank you. Now that we've had a chance to comment on it, I'm going to change it. But that was, I was
1: just like, I was so happy. I was just like
0: putting that up there. I was like, yes.
1: I was like, one, we have a newsletter. What? <laughs> Two, what's going on with the Uh <laughs> oh, I'm just so glad. that I just,
0: so glad to get a reaction um to the newsletter honest opinion the little review format one trip down the river was that interesting or not should i just bail on that whole concept or keep it rolling
2: i think it's fine if you could keep it up you know would you haven't looked at it would you do one weld so you're asking me to wear a GoPro in the river. Yeah. Is that what we're getting at? Yeah, you can paddle up We're going to talk about this later on. but <laughs> We I should talk know. about it now. It's obviously a, a real safety issue. Yeah. All right. Do we'll yeah. you want to get into that that particular? <laughs> we're jumping ahead of the schedule here. Well, let's,
0: let's hold up. Anyway, if you want to see the review, the format for the review, go to thehammerfactor.com. Uh, get on the newsletter,
2: and uh, hopefully you'll learn something. Um, I think we should do I think we should do more boat reviews in general. I think that's I'm, I'm, I'm all about that And I want to do old-school boat reviews. I want to go out and get that That uh, air aquatic that's sitting over at River Sport. It has been used in in 20 years and take that thing out of the water and see if it holds up against modern-day Creekers,
1: I got a Diablo and a tornado in my yard right now There you go. Grace, what do you got? I
0: got a prototype spirit, and I got a some kind of perception wave hopper out here. I got
2: man, I got a bunch of old boats. All right, we should make it. We should make a, a a promise one week to go out and paddle one of these old boats and come back and review it.
0: I'm all about it. And it's funny you say that because some people, some newsletter subscribers, actually sent us that request. they were like, hey, every. That's great on the new boat, but let's see some of the old stuff. Let's see how it compares. So
2: great minds think alike, I guess. So but, the newsletter is not just for you to auto play it yourself <laughs> to build your own brand.
1: All right. All right. All right. All right. Well, I'm,
0: we can say it now. All right, cocksuckers. Listen,
1: <laughs> listen, if you guys... I, did, I didn't use that word. If, if, you, Those are, if, if it's, it's good enough for the New York Times, <laughs> Hey,
0: if we can throw this out in the New Yorker, and you know, whatever, <laughs> and i got to sit there and watch my kids see it, I'm going to say it on the Hammer Factor, <laughs> cock <cocksuckers>. So, <laughs> Listen, anytime you guys want to bring something up to the table here to contribute to the Hammer Factor Network... Bring
2: it on. I'm, I had,
0: I'm ready to. Put for the it record, on.
2: I had one of the best ideas this show has ever seen with uh, our friend in the uh, Pisca National Forest, which has been shot down due to some unsavory details of his arrest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, okay. Well, we anyway, can,
0: we can bring the net blaster back. All um, right. Man, we're supposed to just be touching on these before we get to Lewis's segment here. So let's.
1: Uh, Coming a multi. multi- platform brand, is that what you call it? The newsletter, <laughs> all of them from like like 20 years ago. Do people still use email? <laughs> Do you have a fax that we could...
2: <laughs> we could like a fax service?
1: I use email, but I'm old. Maybe we need like a Slack channel.
2: <sighs>
0: <laughs> I can fill you guys in on some stats of the way things work, but...
1: oh
0: could get into why don't we use the, you know whatever I'm going to leave it right there if you want to see the boat reviews subscribe to the newsletter and we'll actually put it in the mail and lick a stamp so there you go actually, it's a digital newsletter.
1: Um, you'll get your first VHS tape of John Bates' boat reviews <laughs>
0: <sighs> moving on
1: Irwin Tennessee running tally of how many sighs I can elicit out of you, Grace. <laughs> You're doing pretty good so far.
0: Soon <laughs> we're going to get started on the green race here, and then we're going to really get into it. But moving oh, on God. to the Irwin conversation. <laughs> mm. We, we kind of lost the plot with the hanging elephant. <laughs> with the hanging (laughs) elephant.
2: Someone said we jumped the shark because of the hanging elephant. What was that? Yeah,
0: I don't know, but maybe we did. But let me tell you where the whole Irwin comment came up and why it's on my mind. Because every year at the green race, we kind of throw some initiative out there. And this year, our initiative, what we're going to kind of throw our weight behind is seeing if we can leverage to get the Nolichucky River designated wild and scenic. So a big part of telling that story and getting that to happen is getting the local people People from the area, the people who depend on the river, on board to make this political swing happen. And Irwin has an interesting history, and one of its histories is they, they, they did, in fact, hang an elephant in like 1906. So we can move on from there. The point of the story, I know is, the point of this story is the yeah, Nolichucky is a credible river, and, and you guys are unwittingly getting ready to get behind... Designating the Nolichucky Wild and Scenic River. So,
2: and I think they should embrace their their heritage with the uh, hanging elephant. But Or just me. What Mo- do I know about branding?
0: Moving on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Oh God! <laughs> they should have put a
0: big Irwin, Tennessee, like. Neck blaster on the elephant. <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> like the latest IR dry top, you know? Um, oh, man. Quick quick hit here on the uh, Muddy Creek Falls. This was added at the last second here to the show notes. What's up with Muddy Creek? Breaking Mud- news. I, I, I've never, I had never heard of Muddy Creek Falls, so what's up with Muddy Creek?
2: Breaking news. Muddy Creek Falls, highest waterfall in Maryland. It's probably about 50 feet. Uh, comes into the top Yaakam River left, just passed the put in. Got ran for the first time uh, a couple days ago. Um, I had a list of who ran it, but I don't know in front of me. I know Wyatt Heineman and uh, Jared Siler were two of the guys. Uh, Nick Williams was another one. And the other two guys I can't remember the top of my head, I apologize. But in the show notes we actually have a link to the video that'll show everybody. But uh Does anybody you go know, to a
1: log siphon afterwards? Uh No, but
2: <laughs> there's actually a funny story behind that, but
1: I, I'm, I'm not going to blow because that might
2: appear somewhere in someone else's social media content. Um. So a couple of interesting things. One, this happened during the summer, and it seems like now we live here in a temperate rainforest because every year for the past three or four years, we just get four to five inches of rain a month, it seems. Um and so, you know, Cucumber Falls got ran again, which is that crazy waterfall that goes into the lower yacht, uh a couple weeks ago. Um, and then in Cucumber Falls got ran for the first time last summer. Uh, so, I, I mean, we're just, I mean, I don't, there's something weird going on that these waterfalls are getting run for the first time strictly because we just are getting more rain than we've ever seen.
0: So, um, so is that the consistently? Main is that the main reason Muddy Creek had never been rained before? It just, ne- uh, it just didn't get high
2: enough? It just didn't get high that high very often, you know. Um, but we, I mean, we had huge amounts of rain here, you know. And I think it just the time was right and the right crew of people were there. The other weird thing that happened was is that they were kind of trying to hide, you know, from the park as they put on. But right away, it was the middle of the day on Saturday and the park police were there and they actually helped them put on and helped him with parking and then cheers they went down and gave him a high five at the bottom that's awesome right, that's so this is maryland
1: state park is, this is
2: yeah this is muddy creek falls uh 50 feet which is you know contrast that with what happens if you try and run a high pile falls which is about 12 or 13 feet you know without signing a whole raft of of disclaimer you know of waivers and, and forms um you know, you can run up to one eight. So I don't know. I mean, the, the policy on this kind of thing is all over the map, obviously.
0: Dude, that's bigger news so. than they actually ran the waterfall.
2: Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of wondering if word gets out, if these 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 uh, these park rangers or whatever you call them are going to be chastised by their administrators if uh they, they hear that's how it went down. But I don't know. That's what that's what happened.
0: Maybe they'll shift opinion.
2: Well, very it's cool. Fun, but. Big, big I'll tell you, man. We're getting a core. I mean, you look at what these guys are doing and what Ian's doing, and and we're getting a we're getting a, a resurgence in a core group of paddlers here doing some really great whitewater we haven't seen in a long time. There's a whole scene going on here. I think part of it is is the amount of rain we're getting is just making summer whitewater paddling epic. I mean, these guys ran black water just under 700 cfs last Sunday. I think. I mean, that's that's
1: great.
0: Big, big props to the maryland west virginia peeps
1: yeah i got i got a theory on why nobody runs the blackwater higher Let's try this out on you okay My my theory is that i think at high water the gnarliest rapid is the put-in and it's like mm-hmm. i think you can walk down to the put-in see that rapid and be like i don't know if i want to run this and that still doesn't mean you should necessarily put on that could be I mean I think the other thing is
2: that we just have a much smaller boating community here like on a on a perfect day perfect summer day in the blackwater for a CFS you're likely to see two or three other paddlers there if this was Pacific Northwest or the southeast it would be a very different story you know what i mean yeah it I think it's also, so it's getting pushed up incrementally you know what i mean um it's just not
1: so it's just yeah. what's that also that it comes up and down so fast it's like really the best way to approach high water is to kind of like jump it up a little bit at a time and it's like and that's what's happening. You're always running it on the way down up there. It's not like you can get a run at seven hundred and then go the next day and get it at eight hundred. It's mm. like you might yeah, wait another that's true before you get a chance.
2: But that leaves one it really leaves one <laughs> big drop unrun in this area, and that's Blackwater Falls. Uh which is probably seventy ish feet when it's when it's running. Um you know, you'd always speculate if it was that same waterfall, it was in somewhere near Hood River, it would have been run a thousand times by now. But as of yet, that drop has not been run. Um, What's
0: the legal implications
2: that? There is some. I don't know where to separate the rumors from the truth on that issue, but there's a, there's a lot of people saying that it shouldn't be done for legal. You know, we'd get in big there's trouble definitely or the blackwater would become some,
1: legal. There have definitely been some access issues on the blackwater. And I, I'm sure that that would not. Uh, would not help but yeah so i don't know run it and keep it to yourself or just tell have you guys
2: seen? Well, gelman have you seen the Blackwater at a runnable level the falls
1: no but i've never i've only i can only really recall like actually going up and looking at the falls once or twice and one time it was like just covered in ice and the other time it was i can't remember like it it kind of like reconnects on a shelf huh like it has to be high enough to cover that shelf at the bottom or something yeah, I,
2: I mean, to me, there's a big when I saw, and I haven't, I don't have a huge selection of experience to pull from, but it it, it you you kind of want to run it, you want to run it over to the left side, and to uh, on the approach, it's it's a huge, you know, two foot high boil that that's about thirty feet across. You have to paddle up on top of, and be able to get across this boil to get your boat lined up to run off the falls with some kind of you know correct vector. And that's dicey because you could go up in that boil and get shed off like really hard to the right and be have some real serious problems. Uh, that to me was the biggest obstacle, but it definitely looked doable. Don't, I mean, it, I it didn't look impossible, that's for sure. It looked very ballsy though.
1: <laughs> Someday somebody will run it,
2: it's going to get run sooner or later for sure. And we'll see what happens at that point. But
0: all right, well, we're 20 minutes in, guys. Let's move on. Um, we had. I had an article that I brought up um, to the team here about the pursuit of energy, in, in, energy independence at the expense of public lands. I guess this is a new initiative to getting pump, uh, pushed through to, I don't know, kind of put energy extraction ahead of all other user groups is kind of what I saw out of this. Do you want to touch on this real quick, Lewis, before we get into the uh, feel-good story?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So there's this executive order from Trump about energy independence, and it's about uh, removing regulatory burdens to energy production, which is, I I would say, of dubious legality, because there are laws on how all these public lands get managed, and they get managed for multiple use. And, you know, it's become this talking point of Trump and Zinke that we're after energy dominance, And I mean, I think that what they mean is maybe in an international context, but it's sort of an easy turn to say that what these guys are really talking about is energy dominance over other uses of public lands, which is not really legal. Um, There's a secretarial order implementing that executive order. It uh, did some things that are pretty bad, like kind of. Shortcutting the ways in which climate gets considered in land use decisions, Uh, it gets rid of a previous secretarial order from the last administration on mitigation, which means that if your energy use messes up a recreational resource, you have to mitigate for that by, you know, protecting something somewhere else or helping develop a new trail system for the one that you ruined or whatever. Uh, That got cut. Um... There's some requirements under the, the guidance for implementing the executive order that they're supposed to consult with significantly affected entities or something along those lines. And we sent a letter asking that we be considered, OA, we OA, be considered a significantly affected entity so that we can sort of consult on what they're doing with all of this. Uh, we sent that out maybe a week and a half ago, two weeks ago haven't heard anything back. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on at the Department of Interior right now between this energy independent stuff. Um, they're looking to make some changes to the planning regulations for BLM kind of to in response to them throwing out the whole update to the planning rule that was BLM planning 2.0. We talked about this in like January when there was that congressional review act vote to throw out BLM planning. So they're, they're talking about doing something new there. Um, and then we keep hearing these rivers about, you know, political appointees in the back room, just like, you know, drawing lines through the regulations they want to cut. So it, it's, a little hard to get visibility into what's going on at the department of interior right now but i mean a lot of what's going on is these guys can't pass their legislative agenda to the extent that they even have one you know their ability to engage in rulemaking processes which is what you have to do to undo a regulation you know that's a long process that requires some sophistication but they're able to undo things like you know, secretarial guidance on how public lands get managed with the stroke of a pen. And that's the kind of stuff that they're doing right now is just engaging in a lot of kind of backroom shenanigans in terms of how public lands get managed. And, you know, I think we're working on how we're going to, you know, find our way into that back room or find our congressional allies who are going to push back on this stuff. But it's it's troubling for sure. Sounds so funny. I don't know. I I feel like that was a vague story, and it's vague because it's hard to really put your finger on what's going on with these guys. And cool. you know, I've talked to like a lot of our partners in the hunting and angling community, and some of the conservation groups, and they're you know in a similar place to where we are with this, which is that it's 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 tough to find the, the entry way to to addressing this stuff, which is not a great, not a very satisfying answer to give you guys. But that's kind of where it's at.
0: Yeah, but it makes perfect sense. What? Uh, <clears throat> What were you? You were you were kind of hinting that you had a, another little topic here to discuss.
1: Yeah. So something good actually happens. Um, <laughs> <we>, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you Feel like I bought a new mountain bike. <laughs> 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 That's it. Uh, so we talked to, like in the past about forest planning, right? Which is this process that every national forest has to go through every 10 or 15 years where they basically create a zoning map for the national forests and it does things like determine where there's going to be logging, where are places that are you know, more important for their conservation values, how we're going to manage these pieces of public lands. And when forest planning happens, there's a requirement that the land management agencies go out and look for potential uh, wilderness called recommended wilderness and also eligible wild and scenic rivers. And then those places get some, like, interim protections in the forest plan and just sort of management guidance so that, you know, it's not as as good as designating wilderness or designating a wild and scenic river, but it's it helps. And we've got this piece of legislation that we've been working on for... A few years now, it was introduced in the last Congress, and it just got reintroduced. That would add national recreation areas to that list. Ah. So, this would be a way to, you know, as forest planning is going on, it's going to make the Forest Service and the BLM look for, you know, places that are really important for outdoor recreation, and then give those places some like interim protections until potentially an NRA could be designated. And the bill is called uh, Recreation Not Red Tape, which is kind of a weird name, but it does some other stuff as well, like adding a recreation mission to the land management agencies that don't already have one, like Bureau of Reclamation and uh, FERC, among others, which is kind of a big deal. And it has some permitting reforms for outfittering guides, but this, this NRA piece is what we're most stoked about. And we worked super closely with Wyden's office on this for like a number of years, and unbelievably he was able to get Rob Bishop to introduce this bill in the house. Um, I don't know how much you guys know about Rob Bishop, that he's, uh, very conservative, has historically been just awful on public lands issues, like maybe one of the worst. He's the chair of the house natural resources committee, which makes him the most important person in the house on public lands issues. And for some reason, he's decided that he's sanguine with this. I have had some meetings with his staffers, and what they told me was that he had kind of gotten tired of butting heads with uh, Raul Grijalva, who's the ranking member on that committee, meaning he's the top Democrat. And he just really wanted to find something that they could, you know, do that was bipartisan. So I'm, like, unbelievably stoked by this. It's like... A big deal. Like we've been working on this NRA thing as like a concept. Just how do we protect, in particular, places in the front country, like that otherwise would just be managed for multiple use. Like would never really be designated as wilderness. But how do we like protect those places? This is I don't know something we've been thinking about for a really long time. I wrote a big chunk of this legislation myself, and uh, I'm stoked. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'm <sighs> <That's> so <clears throat> undeserving. You might
2: get my fifty dollars back.
1: Sick. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's good to have like a little good news for once. No, that is
0: incredible. You know, I mean, you can't argue with. I mean, it's you can't argue with having a voice at the table. So that's that's super rad. Um, we were going to get into this. Uh, hmm. Do you guys want to get into the killer amoeba, or do we skip that?
1: I don't care about the amoeba. Weld might just stop laughing, start laughing uncontrollably if we we could we, <laughs> we could blaze through
2: the killer amoeba. And take a second.
0: All right, well let's let's keep it quick so we can get into we can get into our celebrity guest. Um, anyway, article comes out: uh, another child dies by the brain-eating amoeba in West yep. Virginia. Um, very sad to hear. And I kind of correlated that into some recent news that the Whitewater Center is not going to test
2: for this amoeba. Right. And then the family of the girl that died at the Whitewater Center is suing the Whitewater Center. Yes. For wrongful and wrongful death type arrangement. Yeah, exactly. So, right.
0: basically, there, I had no real point with sharing this with you guys other than the amoeba still in the news. It's not going away.
1: Well, hopefully it's gone away, right? Well,
0: I mean, the amoeba itself
1: <laughs> it's, has gone
0: away, but the news of the amoeba is not going away because it's still popping
1: No, the amoeba, amoeba
2: is ever present.
0: Yes. Yes. So We can't, so
2: can't escape the water center stock plummeting as we speak. <laughs> well, in the lawsuit, they claimed one of the things that the the lawsuit suggested that the, the water center should have done is warned customers of the potential of a brain-eating amoeba, which <laughs> I have to admit it's not good for business. When you think I mean if you step back and look at it, that's not if you're gonna go rafting, you don't wanna be warned about a, a brain eating amoeba as part of the gig. Um
1: Yeah, I mean to to put the lawyer hat on for a second, um <laughs> that is like a just like a boilerplate uh claim. And like any sort of like negligence or like <laughs> liability suit is failure to warn. It's like whatever it is, you're like failure to warn. That's like just something that gets thrown in every time but <laughs> well this is a very sad thing i, don't know. I can't joke about it but i God, our, the hammer factor has taken a dark turn man it's just laughing about hanging elephants and brain eating amoeba Yes, <laughs> guys are sick uh, yeah.
2: it's kind of macabre for sure
1: don't
0: exclude yourself lewis one of these days i'm going to record that the monsters. pre-conversation
2: Seriously, hey, man. You guys blackmail are you.
1: <laughs>
2: um,
0: anyway, I guess we heard from the pathologist. The brain amoeba is really a non-starter. It's not really something you need to worry about.
2: Well, he says they're chlorinating the
0: water at Charlotte, and that should
2: kill it. Yeah,
0: and even if they didn't kill it, it's still kind of hard to get, you know, because it's... Can
2: we call... I mean, it's, it's Doc Rocco. Can we call him... The official doctor of the Hammer Factor podcast? Yeah. The The medical medical, uh, correspondent? Is he our official official pathologist?
1: Yeah, Doc Wheezy, too. We might have to narrow his scope. He's the official surgeon.
2: All right. And this guy could be the official pathologist. We've got a medical team.
0: We've got a medical team at the Hammer Factor. That's right. If you send us a message, you want to know,
2: we got the people.
0: Right. Right. Moving on, should we get our special guest on the line?
2: Yeah, it would be better because he's going to be drunk in about a half hour, like too drunk to do this.
0: <laughs> All right, while I'm doing this, um, uh, Mr. Well, can you introduce our special guest and kind of bring his relevance to the show and kind of give a little background on him?
2: Well, this, we had a couple articles um, uh, come across our desk here at the Hammer Factor. <laughs>
1: Regardless really, we slalom. should have had Alden on to talk about his article, but
2: <laughs> yeah. What 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 were the names of the articles? I don't, I don't have my my show notes in front of me here. What what are the names of the articles?
1: It's Alden Bird's blog, and it's called Notes from the North Country. But I don't know right. what the blog was.
2: The two the two posts were about, and this is this is definitely a, a hammer factor trope. But it was about slalom and the death thereof in the in the United States and the importance of slalom and paddling, and. We thought it was high time to bring in some authority on this subject to really hash this, this out. And so uh, we thought, who better than Eric Giddens, who uh, – who, well, I, don't, I
1: mean, he's a paddler. I, I can tell he's a paddler because he's wearing a sup hat right now. He's. <laughs> I want to just John. sup hat. You gotta make some a <laughs> uh, Welcome uh, to the, Welcome to the
2: show. He's an Olympian. He's a, he's a he's an Olympian, right? His wife was an Olympian. He has a, he's been through the slalom machine, you know. Uh, he's been churned up like sausage in the slalom machine and spit back out the other side. Also, an uh, uh, Olympic
1: Sloan broadcaster, so maybe he can help us pull this get shit our house together. Order here. Yeah, exactly. Could you, <laughs> could you use your
2: broadcasting voice sound. while you do okay. the interview? If you'd like me to, Mr. Well, sure <laughs> to do that. Welcome okay, so to the
3: show. Ahead, give, us, give us your bio. Welcome to the show, yeah. with Eric
0: Giddens, and uh, feel free to introduce yourself and a little about you.
3: All right. Well, again, thanks for having me on. Um, I've heard legend of this uh, this podcast. So I'm definitely stoked to be involved. In fact, uh, Mr. Weld promised this would boost my kayaking career, so I'm gonna hmm. right after this is done. I'm just gonna go boof the meat and see what happens. <laughs> um, so, quick story about me. I got into kayaking. I actually got into whitewater canoeing when I was a child with my family, and saw some guys on the Nana Halo running through gates and I was maybe 11 or 12 and got into it and I've been doing it ever since. That was 33 years ago, I think. And uh, eventually made the junior team. The U.S. team made the Olympics in 1996. I've coached uh, at the Olympic level. I've been an Olympic judge and now I've been broadcasting the last two Olympics for NBC. So Been around the sport a long time. Uh, I still haven't figured it out and what makes it tick, but it's a fun
0: conversation to have. So you read the article that was sent over here. Um, There was two articles in particular. They were from the Notes from the North Country website. Um, Where are they? One of them was uh, Why Whitewater Kayaking Isn't a Family Sport and How Slalom Can Help, and the initial article was called The Two Jacksons. Can you give us your opinion yeah. on
3: those? You know, and I, I read those, and, and, you know, stop me if I misconstrue something, because I can barely read, but uh, we'll start with the first article. Um, the first article basically said that the reason slalom kayaking has, has died is because there are too many rivers to paddle in the United States that are good, and why would you basically, you know, run around in circles in Class 2 when you can go, you know, move Class 5s? And, uh, you know... I guess backtracking there's a lot of things that have made slalom suffer and and to be to be clear, I don't think it's dead. I think it's just lying on the side of the road bleeding badly. I think we, can, <laughs> we can resuscitate it. Um, but this was it was an interesting uh, perspective, and one that I, I think it missed the mark a little bit. Um, I mean it's true that. There are a lot of great rivers in the United States, well, at least on the West Coast. I don't know about that swag you guys paddled back east. But <laughs> there's there's a ton of great rivers, but there always has been. And in the 1980s, um, you know, there were 200 kayaks at the national championships. Um, we still had great rivers back then, just like we do now, but the sport was was thriving. So I'm not exactly sure if if that was the uh, the... the the root cause of what's going on, and he did make another point that boats have changed. So, yeah, in 1987, if you wanted to boof the spout, you wanted to be in a solemn boat, not a dancer. I mean, you know, well, I've seen you boof in a dancer. It's not pretty. <laughs> huh. <laughs> Look at that! You take it.
2: It's a, that's a cheap shot. <laughs>
0: I like it. Keep so, going with that. Yeah, well,
2: actually, well, have you ever boofed a dancer? Be honest with I you. don't know. Um, I'm not sure. Like the term "boofing" wasn't really widely in use when the dancer was around. We kind of did like the sort of the hunt for red October. You know what I mean? We went deep. You just went <laughs> fast. going deep it was like I, a I heard Lars they called it the ski jump. So. You just put your hands over your head, and you just went in like a drill bit. You know, that was kind of the move. You probed <laughs> around a little bit, and you surfaced up, maybe upside down, maybe right side up. <laughs> you went about your way.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, he, he has a valid point there. Equipment has changed drastically. Uh, and so why would somebody, you know, spend 2000 bucks on a slalom boat that's just going to sink in a couple weeks versus, you know, having a boat that's easy to paddle and, you know, is, is cheap and can, you know, as long as you're – able to get it down the river correctly will last you years and years um but i, I think you know this guy alden um i think he kind of found the root cause as to why he wasn't participating in slalom and his attraction to, to recreational kayaks i didn't see you know uh, a, a deep root cause in there i mean lewis you you kind of love boofing the meat like what was you know the fact that why were you doing slalom and running rivers
1: yeah, you know, I mean, to me, I think looking back on, you know, kind of the slalom heyday in the 80s or early 90s, you know, what you know, like in the 80s, if you were running the Upper Yacht, you were like an expert. Like, that was kind of I mean, I don't want to say you know, I think in other parts of the country, maybe people were were paddling harder at whitewater, but in the East Coast like if you were running the Upper Yacht in the 80s, like that was kind of like towards the top of the sport and you could do all that stuff in the slalom. But, and it just seemed much, it was just much closer together then. I mean, I think Alden did make a good point in that second one about the, uh, you know, how kids play competitive sports. Like, that's just, like, what you do when you're a kid. And, like, that was, you know, I was into running rivers, and I was like, all right, like, we play sports. So that's what you do when you're a kid. Like, I want to do competitive river running. And the closest thing there was to competitive river running, it seemed to me, was was slog. And so, like, that was just what you did. But... Um, I don't know. I mean, I I think that the idea that Slalom has just sort of begun to suffer in comparison to running Whitewater, that aspect of it sort of resonated with me. Like, to me, I think about, you know, like, when you go to Europe and turn on sports on the TV, it's totally different. Like, if you watch Eurosport, like, it looks nothing like SportsCenter. It's, like, obscure sports. I mean, it's a, a lot cooler in a lot of ways to me, but, It's very, uh, I think, sort of sporting appetites in Europe are a lot different than they are in the U.S., just for whatever reason. But because slalom's so popular in Europe, Europe has been able to set the direction of the sport. And it hasn't been able to evolve in the U.S. in a way that is sort of responsive to what people are into. Like, I think that the progression of slalom from you know, what was going on in the eighties and early nineties in Europe has been towards artificial courses, shorter boats, like a more kind of urban environment. And in the U S like a more natural progression might've been to towards more whitewater worthy boats, you know, maybe a race still racing a composite boat, but maybe it's 25 pounds instead of 17 pounds. Maybe you're racing it. You know, maybe it doesn't look like the North Fork race, but maybe it looks a little more like the North Fork race. And that's something that would kind of interest people more than sort of traditional solo. But it's hard to set the direction of the sport without participants and money. And so like what needs to happen is to like rebuild the grassroots of the sport in the U.S., get a lot of people participating, have a lot of grassroots races, let people see the relevance of the sport. And then maybe in 10 or 15 years, there's money and you can bring back something like what the champion series was in the 90s. But then have that as an opportunity to sort of set the direction of the sport a little bit more. Like, if you're having a big prize money series, top racers are going to come from all over the world. And you can, you know, set the terms then. Like, maybe you're racing on, you know, some big water natural or class four instead of South Bend.
2: I think, to me, it's like no one wants to hang gates. I mean, that's like the biggest nut, is that no one wants to hang gates. And really, the only people who can hang gates effectively and, and maintain them for years on end, which no one wants to do, is some kind of institution, like a school or a training center, or some government-subsidized athletic you know facility where mm. someone's going to sit there and maintain gates shoot pain ass, because I think if you built gates, you people would come. I think right away, American paddlers would realize how gratifying and difficult paddling solemn gates are and how much it's helping their boating in general and how it's letting them to get out and boat in places all over the country and really challenge themselves in a whitewater boat in, you know, limited whitewater resources. But no one wants to put up a, a gate. That's awful. We've all done it and it's terrible.
0: See, you know? I, I disagree with that. We had gates here on the ledges and they were just in the way in an eyesore, so we ended up moving concrete and getting them all out of there no one used them they were there
3: well i, I think you guys are all touching on a lot of things that, or what what i think are are the root problem and, I, and Alden touches on it i think a lot in his second article which i think was much more on point um it, it comes to opportunity and and getting youth into the sport and i think back in the 80s you know i got involved through my local club you know the atlanta whitewater club um and you know that's what kids did you know you know, parents did it. Kids did it. You all went to local club. And because and you lived in a city, you couldn't go kayaking every, every day. So you'd go in the local solemn course and, and get into it through that. So I think, you know, the, the death of the, of the local whitewater club um, is kind of, you know, part of it. I, I think we, we lost touch on, on our priorities of getting people into the sport and kind of had more of a priority on, you know, getting people on the U.S. team. And that and that kind of cut out the foundation from un- underneath us. And that's, you know, I, I blame the USOC a lot for that. Um, you know, when we first started, uh, we were announced to be in the Olympics in 92. They put a lot of money into the foundation of the sport, and um, it was great. You know, we started to have these camps where young uh, whippersnappers like Lewis Geltman would show up <laughs> and get free coaching from, you know, whitewater greats like Eric Hidden's. <laughs> and it, uh, it was good, and, and then after '96, about right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> funding, funding got tight, and they they, they tried the good old American approach of well, we'll give money to the people at the top, and that'll be the incentive for those at the bottom to try to get there. And what happened at that point in time is a lot of the clubs had turned into racing clubs as opposed to just general whitewater recreation clubs. And then things started to fall apart because there was no more funding, um, and people were expecting to get money. Like, coaches needed money. It wasn't people volunteering their time. So, um, you know, and, and he, he brought this up a, a lot in the article, just getting kids into the sport. Um, so I think that's our biggest challenge moving forward. If we want Stolom to survive, which, you know, maybe, John, Grace, you don't, because you've always hated solemn hmm. Uh <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we need Straight to get up. kids kids into it and, uh, and realize that, Hey, you know, as, as me as a, as an ex slalom racer, I'm going to have to volunteer my time and hang those stinking gates up and get a few kids out there and coach them a couple times a week and, and go from there. And then, you know, having the, the local series, like Lewis mentioned the Colorado series, the champion series, uh, we used to have a series in the Southeast, the Dixie cup. Um, you know, those were things as a kid I looked forward to. Um, you know, you could, you could race three or four weekends in a row and not drive eight hours. You could drive like you know an hour and a half or two hours each way, and and have a great time. So those are the things that that you know I think we can do a lot better on moving forward. Will it save the sport? I
2: don't know. Um, I mean, why has it, the USCKT failed to do anything like this for year after year?
1: I mean, I mean, I think Ghetto was right right on. I mean, it's this idea that all the money has to go to the top of the sport, and I think the reason is that the sport is run by. You know, the parents of high level junior racers and the people on the national team. And everybody is just sort of fighting all the time for their own piece of this like little tiny pie. And there's nobody really at that, in that conversation, who's really pushing to invest in like the very, very lowest levels of the sport. And I think that that's just essential to all of it.
3: I, I, I agree, Lewis. And the problem is, as the pie gets smaller and smaller, we get more vicious about trying to get that piece of the pie. And we, you know, at some point we need to be sort of altruistic. And if you go back and think about it, like, you know, so John Lugbill and Davey and Kathy and all those guys, when they started in the 70s, they weren't getting big checks from the USSE or from USAC. Or they weren't getting coaching. It was just a passion of theirs. They figured out ways to make it work. And I, I think the, the failure of – and I, I, I should use this carefully, but uh, the idea – that just because we're good at something means we should get a lot of money. Um, okay. I, I think that needs to go away.
1: I agree. And I, I think that, you know, building that base of the sport, it's like an investment in fundraising too, right? It's like, I don't know if you remember back when when uh, Clyde's, is like, a restaurant chain in D.C. and they sponsored all the masters yeah, yeah. in D.C. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure at some point it was like the reason that happened is because the guy who owned that restaurant chain was just somebody who is this guy Stuart davidson and he was passionate about kayaking and about slalom and he wasn't a slalom racer he was just a kayaker but he saw that there was relevance between what he was doing and what these folks in the national team were doing and it's like you have to have that broad base of interest in the sport you know like if you Make opportunities for people who are just, you know, recreational voters to, you know, go paddle some gates, like get a little coaching, see that this helps you get better and that it's kind of interesting. Like those aren't people that are going to make the national team, but maybe they're the people whose businesses are going to decide that they want to, you know, help support USA Canoe Kayak or, Maybe they're the people that are going to validate that activity for another business that will. Because, like, you know, like, somebody approaches your company and is like, you should sponsor these slalom racers. And you're like, well, let me ask my buddy who's a kayaker, like, what he thinks. And the guy who's a kayaker is like, slalom? Like, that's something that people wearing lycra shorts do on concrete channels in Oklahoma City.
2: Yeah, but you know, it's, <laughs> you know, along with that, you know, I think a lot of our listeners might be a little confused as why we keep coming back to this as a subject. And I mean, the thing is, is I think we all know how much better you get at kayaking by practicing slalom, even in class two. And as soon as you know, a guy who's an accomplished class five paddler who's never paddled a gate has to do a clean ten gate course in a class two rapid. He can't, you know, how, you know, how helpless he is in that regard and how terrible it is. It's an eye-opening event. Like, they realize they don't know almost nothing in terms of, of how to read current, you know, and, and uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for, you know, understanding of, of, of reading water, you know. So, I don't know. I think it's, that, that's, that's why we keep, I mean, that's why I keep beating this drum because I just realize how much better we, how much better of a paddle you can be if this was part of your curriculum, you know.
1: And I, well, think is, people, I think people see that and then they're like, you know, I have people ask me all the time, they're like, how do I, you know, get some slalom coaching or like get involved in this? And it's like, you just got to shrug your shoulders, right? It's like, I don't know, like be 20 years younger and move to Oklahoma City.
3: How do we make slalom more inclusive again? I mean, there's, there's a couple That's, of little nuggets in this, uh, in this article about sort of elitist, you know, clicky, man necks wearing and uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, read an actual quote out of this, and maybe, Lewis, you can help me out in deciphering this. My lasting memories from those years are a lot of scruffy-looking 20-age racers chasing each other around the theater in Dickerson. Wh- who is he talking about in that particular? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I discovered the downfall of Solomon is Lewis Geltman's trick and fault. It's that uh, He was just wandering around in his spandex. Uh, and Ryan Bond. Scaring people
2: away. Geltman and Ryan Bond.
3: <laughs> Ryan <laughs> Bond. Yeah, that's the real yeah. cause right
2: there.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, we'll have to get Ryan
0: Bond on here to defend himself.
3: Hmm. I, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's fun to actually have this conversation. I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation means that maybe there's some, some hope down the road. Um, but the bottom line is I don't think there's any one magic pill if, if that was the case we we probably would have done that a long time ago. Um, but but certainly trying to trying to build the the bottom structure of the sport back together and that's kids um, and you and you see it in Europe and you see it in the United States a lot of these kids that are starting to do well, you know their parents were paddlers and you see it in Europe too. it's kind of one of those things you know if if, uh, um, you know you're born with a club foot you know and then you have kids your kid also has a club foot so if you're a slalom paddler and you're born your kid might also be a slalom paddler
2: that's a great analogy it's (laughs) it's a curse that you have to (laughs) (laughs) i mean lewis do you know who who's our who's our top ranked men uh, male and female slalom paddler in the u.s right now
1: uh best kayaker is uh miha Smolin. He's legit. He uh, won the U23 World Championships um, a couple years ago. Has some World Cup medals. He's, he's good. Um, the top uh, ladies paddler was Ashley Mee. Uh, she didn't go to team trials this year, I think partially because of the funding issue. Um, so I couldn't actually tell you who, who that weaves. See, I, I think I've, I, What I've heard is that there are a, a handful of really good uh, women's kayak racers, but they're, like, 15 years old, and, like, they're really was, good. There's a guy. really
3: good group of young ladies coming up, I think. Sage uh, Donnelly is is awesome all-around kayaker. Um, but also, again, some, some kids, you know, Davis and Leibfarth, uh, their parents were paddlers, and they're getting into it, and they're doing really well. Hmm. All,
1: All right, there, there we go. Giddo, why aren't you on Upper Cherry right now?
3: Because uh, I had to brew the last
1: couple. days. Is it running right now? Is that the is that the word? Yeah, I think uh, I think like today or tomorrow is probably the day start hiking. Today,
3: yeah, I got a beer festival this weekend in Mammoth. I'm still holding out for like uh, Middle Kings at the end of August or something. Hopefully, I can get strapping my kayak on my back and do one big uh, one big hoorah. We'll see. Man,
0: I bet I bet Middle Kings will be in next week. Yeah. One, one week from today. I bet you could start hiking one week from today. I saw it oh, was down to like. So, there's so much snow up there still, Grace. I saw that uh, Kings at Rogers Crossing was down to like 2,400 or something like that.
3: Yeah, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while, I'm guessing, before it drops below 1,500. But we'll see. It's, it's been a crazy year out here in California. There's been so much snow, so yeah. much water. It's been a great, uh, great reprise from our, our five years of historic drought.
1: Yeah, man, Turnville, you guys are back on the map.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> we, uh, we've had over three
3: thousand CFS since January. It's been it's what? been pretty amazing.
1: Oh and, my god!
3: Uh, wow! Uh, have you guys seen uh, all those videos of uh, Johnny and Evan running the Cataracts at like five thousand CFS? It's burly. Oh
0: yeah, I love. Yeah, it. Yeah, looks sick. I a lot of good a lot of good points in that article. Um, you know, I could pick apart every little part of the article or whatnot, but I agree with the overall. I mean, it's good to be talking about it. I think there's a lot of momentum in that group, that explosion of paddle sports where everybody got into it in the late 90s, early 2000s who are having kids and they're all looking to get them on the water some way. And I bet a lot of them are going to fall into the slalom category. So I'm hopeful.
3: Well, one thing that will be interesting is whenever they announce uh, L.A. getting the bid and hopefully Slalom is in it again, um, I feel like that's a golden opportunity because, number one, it's going to be a long ways away uh, and we'll have a chance to get a lot of kids into the sport with the idea that they might make the Olympic team. Uh, But number two, Los Angeles is huge. Just the the number of people that are there um, and the ability to expose a lot of people to a whitewater course in a, in a, a place like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that'll, that'll sort of lead to a resurgence. I guess we'll see.
2: I don't know. It seems the the Olympics doesn't seem to have a bad track record, uh, of attracting people into the sport. If you just, I mean, it looks like there's a a correlation between the Olympics and the decline of, of slalom, but maybe there's no,
0: well, I think, uh, I think Eric has uh, causality. I think Eric's got the secret sauce, make it affordable. You know, make sure you're inclusive. Invite
2: everyone. Um, Should we encourage plastic boater manufacturers to make plastic slalom boats? Does that make sense? I don't think so. Yeah.
3: I think you just put on more races for plastic boaters. So, again, you know, we've gone to our, our local race here, which has a really good turnout. We've gone to single poles, like eight or nine. So you don't have to, like, mess with too much. And people love it. You put padding on the poles. You don't count penalties. You know, it basically becomes uh, an obstacle course in a kayak. And, you know, it's technically a slalom, um, but it's nothing close to what you're going to see on, on the Olympics on TV.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like slalom has a great reputation in the Northwest right now between the North Fork race. We had a slalom race at Spirit a few times during the Little White race. And uh, we had a few beer slaloms. I feel like... <laughs> Beer slalom really might be the. Uh,
3: if the that's the case, I'm coming of out of retirement. <laughs> you better watch out! I'm coming out of retirement for that.
1: I kind of decided <laughs> that I'm to keep organizing it, but uh who knows? Maybe I'll come out of retirement. Yeah. Well, if you need a sponsor, Kern River
3: Brewing Company would we'll happily, uh you know, be your, your. We just need very, very good insurance
1: in place.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll, get, I'll, I'll get our local ACA wrap on it
2: <laughs> we, we need to make sure there's no amoebas in the water before anything went down
3: no amoebas we'll definitely need some vomiting insurance you know that's <laughs> <what it is>.
0: <laughs>
3: all <laughs> right should we keep
2: going
0: yeah we should keep going um you know i got more i can say on that topic but anyway Beer moving on <laughs> um We talked, you you guys touched a little bit about money at the top of the circuit, and that comes into a few people fighting over the dollars. It kind of brought me to another topic that we kind of wrote in our um, show notes a little bit about, you know, athletes in general, sponsoring athletes, Um, you know. Is the value of that money, what it actually does the value of the sponsored athlete for the actual sport? Um, John, can you elaborate a little bit on, on on kind of what you were saying there with that little note?
2: Maybe this is a question that we can sort of introduce today and and pick up next week if we have some input from the from the listeners, but you just. Get, every year we question whether how much money and whether we should even bother sponsoring athletes with cash and gear you know it's relatively easy to give people a discount on gear it's a little bit more difficult to give people free gear and then you have people who at the point where that you know they where they're big enough they actually demand cash and there are people there are companies out there that'll pay it for sure you know um, without mentioning any names. Uh, and so the internal debate at IR is whether that's actually a good idea or not for our sport. Like, are we big enough? And Does it really make a difference for consumers if, if Evan Garcia is getting paid by Sweet? I mean, is that helping Sweet sell stuff? So I don't know. I mean, I've been doing this 20 years. I still don't have an answer. You know, like, so I, I don't know. I, I kind of want to throw that out there and see if uh, people out there have any input on that. Eric has got to solve this for me right now. Maybe. Well, it's interesting because I'm coming from it from a, a different
3: perspective. So, so we have a brewery out here in California, and I get approached by paddlers, you know, for for not just free beer, but but, but money potentially as well. And we haven't done it yet, but it's something we've we've discussed, Rebecca and I. Um, I, I would consider giving someone money not because they're going to help my brand necessarily or sell more beer but um and again because i'm not in a paddle related industry i don't know how you guys could ever give money away because i don't know how you survive in a paddling industry i tried to talk you <laughs> out of that john remember we were talking about making booze, and you didn't listen to me but yeah anyway
2: no, it's I, yeah kicking myself
3: um but but maybe this is an opportunity for me to say okay well i'll give you some money but i want you to turn back and then do things for the paddling community like like for example coach some kids or or you know be a good influence on, on the paddling world and not just go huck your meat off a waterfall and throw my, my, you know, uh, logo up on the video. So I don't know. It's, and I don't have the answer, but it's something that we're, we're thinking about, but from a totally different perspective than, than you have been, John.
2: Yeah. I don't know. It's tough. Cause you know, you have a group of employees here and they know if you cut a check to an athlete, they're thinking, man, we all could use a thousand dollar raise rather than giving five grand to that guy, you know? Um, so, and you want to, you want to make sure you're, do, you're spending that money in a way that's going to increase sales, but I'm, I'm not always 100% convinced that it does. We do, in some cases, sponsor athletes with cash, but, but it's always a tough debate. So, I'm going to throw that out there. Well, see what we hear back.
0: I, you know, sponsoring athletes is basically influencer marketing, and if a company does it right, just like any other type of marketing, it can be valuable, but, If you're just trying to stay friends with someone or you don't have a plan of how that is going to work out for you, it's not going to work. So that's my two cents. I think it can be great for both parties involved, but if you don't have a plan to actually leverage that money spent,
2: then. But what do you do? I mean, what do you what do you expect them to do? You know, you know I mean, you could say you could say, "Give me some photos," and they may or may not do that. No, that's they that's where you won't. That's where you're messing up. You know, up. you could say, "I need you to go to some stores and visit visit stores, give a gear clinic," and they're going to be like, "There's just no way I'm doing that." I mean, are you going to tell Evan Garcia to go visit stores and? Talk about gear. He, that's just simply not going to happen. Well, why don't you get a you team know?
0: of guys together, throw them some cash, and say, "Look, I want you to start a, paddle, a slalom paddling club once a week in your area, and just talk about that. Do something different.
2: Uh, maybe, maybe that's the answer.
0: You know, I think if you're just going to throw them out and be like, yeah, me, hashtag me on some Facebook posts. I'm not sure that's going to. Generate some revenue, but if you go out and actually make an impact, I mean, that's the same as you yourself going out there. You know, marketing—the def- definition of marketing is creating a market. So, have them go out there. I and think it should one. be.
1: I think it should be a little bit more like demeaning and like hazing oriented than that. Like, it should be like you have to just hang out at the takeout for like an entire afternoon and just run shuttles all day. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, push I like, already <laughs> sponsored my shuttle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Eric that's what you should get them to do you should have like a 15 passenger van and have them run shuttles and hand out beers
3: I, 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 think, I think we have solved this problem I, I, think we're gonna start I like that, that idea My in opinion, fact what I, we're going to do is I'm going to personally sit there
2: and hike people's boats into Upper Cherry
3: um, you know, just uh, just to you know get some good
2: good vibe out there. <laughs> All right, so maybe I'll rephrase this question. Give me things that if I pay an, an athlete, give me things they can do to either grow the sport or humiliate themselves, and or humiliate themselves. <laughs> if you do it at the same
3: time, that's ideal. <laughs> you know what you need to do is you need to sponsor Lewis, but do sub clinics. <laughs>
1: Before like in yoga in, soft classes in bandage. yes. Perfect. I'm making this non-profit dollars now. I don't have to do myself like that anymore.
0: Okay, before we move right. on
1: to the uh, SUP section
0: of the show, let's mm. throw it out there to our viewers. On, it's, you know, to our viewers, have you made a decision on buying something from an athlete? And if so, what was it? we'll see what we come up with. We'll, we'll revisit this one a few times. It's a good topic. There's nothing right. more frustrating than being like, "Yeah, we're going to get into like, you know, sponsoring somebody." I'm like, "Okay, well, this is a discussion outside of power sports. Let's just say it's this is a discussion I recently had." Well, okay, that sounds great. You know, we've got this small amount of budget, you know. Well, what do we want them to do? Oh, I'm not sure. I just want to be a part of it. Well, I'm not sure that that is going to pay off for you. I bet it's just going to end up with frustration on both ends. So, that's my two cents. Um, so how's the paddle boarding out on the current these days? Uh,
3: I don't know. There's been water, so I've been kayaking, but, um,
1: yeah, when there was no you. water for a long
3: time, <laughs> uh, it was actually pretty fun getting into paddle boarding. It, Rebecca and I, you know, we were in San Diego for a while, so we were surfing and then this new sport came along where you could actually surf and hold a paddle at the same time. And it was like, holy crap. And in the ocean, it was actually advantageous. Uh, and then people started doing it on the river, and it looked like exactly the wrong tool for the job. But we tried it anyway, um, and it turns out, yeah, it is the wrong tool for the job. But you know, when all you have is class two, you might as well make it hard, right? So we've been doing it for a while, and Rebecca's been doing well. She made a bunch of money at the Payette River Games, and we've been going to GoPro games the last couple of years and, and doing kayak and SUP races. So uh, it's it's been it's been good. I you know I have to admit, John, it's it's
2: more fun than it looks. I've done it a few times. I just, I, can't quite, I just can't quite wrap my head around it. I don't know.
0: We can all agree, though, that the greatest thing for
2: paddleboarding is drought on rivers. I mean, <laughs> yeah, which we don't have. I mean, we, like I said, we live in a rainforest now. We get, we get 10 inches of rain a month, I think. So
1: it's just never-ending. All
2: right, yeah, guys.
1: I got, I got a mountain bike and solve that problem. Oh, God, here we go. Right. <laughs> all
0: right. <laughs> Uh, guys, we're at our time, li- time limit. Favorite section of the show here, Rants and Raves. This is where our cast goes on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave about something that they're stoked or not so stoked about. Who would like to lead us off with our rant and rave section?
2: I got a Josh. rant. All right. Actually, before I start, Louis, do you actually have a rant or rave this week that's been prepared?
1: Louis is going to I contribute? do, actually. I, as well, usual, well, you, did not have one prepared, but when you started talking about this sponsorship dilemma, one came to me. All right. Well, why don't and you go ahead, then? My rant is putting your sponsor logos on your stuff in a stupid way. Like... If you're sponsored by immersion research and cover your paddle and your boat in immersion research stickers, what I feel like you're saying with that is not, I like immersion research. It's I'm sponsored and I'm using this gear because I got it for free. It's like using the gear is a better advertisement and having it remain vague as to whether you bought it with your own hard earned money or got it for free is a way more valuable endorsement in my eyes than just like covering yourself in stickers. When what you're really saying is like, look at me and how cool I am. I'm sponsored.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> that's what I got. All right. <laughs> all right.
0: Well, that brings me to a quick question. Weld, if someone got a yeah. neck blaster of immersion research would that, right. Would you be into
2: sponsoring that's, them? That's like a neck tattoo, right? <laughs> just to, so we all, it's like a tattoo that goes up around your neck and in your ears and stuff like that. Um, they might, they might get some free shorts or something. I don't know. I'd have to look at the tattoo. But you wouldn't pay for the artwork. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Larry Boothby would not be into it. I assure you. <laughs> I don't. I don't pull him kicking his screw back in this podcast. But uh, he would not like the neck blaster IR logos for sure. All right, let's hear your rant. Your face. Okay, my rant, my rant is in the ACA. And Louis, I'm sorry <laughs> if I'm getting you in hot water about this, but we were at this outdoor retailer trade show, right? And you know, it's kind of a thing. You know, I mean, people go there, spend a lot of money on booths, and it's a chance to put your best foot forward. And even in a down year like this year, you see thousands. Potentially, can see thousands of people. The ACA, and this is this is you can you can agree with this without saying anything bad about your partner. The ACA had the sorriest booth I have ever seen at any trade show. Bar none. This guy had a card table behind a door with like beer koozies and refrigerator magnets on it. And that was it. And and some brochures. I mean it was sorry. And I'm thinking, ACA, man, you gotta get your head in the game. You know what I'm saying? We're fighting for our lives here and you got
1: you got koozies and magnets. The, be- the best part of this was that Weld was not just thinking these things, but accosting the dude behind the picnic table. about it. <laughs> I had no idea who, like, who was guy. You're I like laying into the I intern. He's just like looking at this guy. And he's just like Weld. Just walks up and he's like, he's like, "What is this? Like, what what's going on here?" And the guy's like, "Ah, oh, we got some like beer koozies and magnets." So Weld's like, "Yeah, like <laughs> like what are you doing?" Like, I mean, they're hurting. Up. I mean, they're, they're actually
2: <laughs> spending money to hurt their brand by doing stuff like that. <laughs> Seriously, you know they could they could take their money and do anything with that, and be better spent than doing what they did there. <laughs> that's my rant. ACA, if you're listening, you you got to get your act together. That's not that's not cool, right? Look at Lewis and uh, and uh, Kramer. You got Kramer, who's basically the Abby Hoffman of the outdoor retailer, <laughs> and a megaphone screaming at people on a stage, and Gelman's, you know, shit runner podcast star. You know, in a suit lobbying Congress, <laughs> super happening. I mean, you guys are—you guys have it going on. They should take a—they should take a cue from from your script. You know what I'm saying? All right, Definitely. that's my rant. <laughs> that's what I got.
0: Uh, Eric, ACA, would you like- give me
2: a, give me a call. ACA, we we got some talking to do. Yeah, <laughs> teaching, right?
0: Something. Would you like to chime in on this one, Eric? Do you have a rant or a rant?
3: it's really hard to follow john up on that um no. but I, you know what you can jump since, on the aca bandwagon
2: if you want i'm cool with that I,
3: i'm gonna i'm gonna stay away from that one with a 10 with a foot pole. um but well you know what let's since racers are always uh, elitist and negative uh wh- how about if i rave about something is that allowed on the on the show bring it when's the last time you actually raved about something
2: it's been a few weeks I think I'm up for once in a while when he kit- it's usually yeah. about one of us like, <laughs> Grace raved about himself one time
1: uh, so where does that I, even I come from like how do you where does that even <laughs> Like, where does that thought
0: even come from <laughs> Look, our celebrity guest for is up to the mic all right all right sorry uh,
3: so uh, actually, this is it was it was a, a surprise to myself. I guess not really surprised because I've seen this boat out on the water for a while now, but I I just paddled that uh, that new Jackson boat, the uh, Nirvana, and guys, it was pretty good.
2: That's what Grace was
3: saying. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's uh, you know I've kind of been I've been living in the '90s in my Nomad for a little while now. Um, but it was, uh, I was, I was pretty surprised on what a difference it was from, you know, my, my 19, my old mad. And uh, I was pretty blown away.
2: Not going to lie. Do you have, have you been paddling other, other, uh, sort of longish Creek boats to compare it to, or is this just sort of.
3: Yeah. No, the other day at GoPro, I jumped in an infinity. Remember that boat, um, <laughs> from the late eighties. Late yeah. and I mean, uh, That came
2: out. That's like from the Korean War. <laughs> I mean, something recent. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and then... I affinity. Mean, uh, I- there's there's t- 5,000 people scratching their head right now trying to Google an affinity kayaks to see what <laughs> the hell you're talking about.
1: <laughs> it's favorite boat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, if you paddle like a 9R, have you heard of a 9R? It's a,
1: it's a uh, boat by
2: Piranha, who's a boat company from England. is Piranha? Right. <laughs>
3: Uh, no, I, uh, I've, uh, you're right. I haven't paddled many modern boats. Um, the green boat is one of my favorite boats. I got an Axiom. That's been pretty fun to paddle. Um, All right. But uh, yeah, it was just I don't know. Just kind of this this whole new generation of uh, of goofy boats was was pretty fun to uh, fun to try
1: out.
2: All right. Uh, that's a, that's the a second ray for Nirvana we've had in
1: uh, as many weeks. Yeah, I think this is gonna tip me over the scales of actually having to try it.
0: Yeah. Dude, you gotta watch that video I sent out, man. In the newsletter, Lewis.
1: It'll educate Tacks you. Jackson kayaks, Green, <laughs> GoPro. Oh I like speaking
2: GoPro of which, me. we never we had on the show <laughs> that was talking about whether GoPro cameras on a helmet is a safety hazard. Should we just touch on that real quick nah, and get we'll, back to the last rant? We, we gotta
0: we gotta we gotta wrap this thing up. I'm gonna I'm gonna end here with a rave. Alright. I'm gonna rave and I believe I ranted about this on a previous show when we had uh, um, when we had uh Luke Hopkins on to talk about the one wheel, but I've been one wheeling a little bit. I borrowed one and play and, and I'm gonna rave on the on the one wheel. So well, finish rave and I have a funny I'm gonna to rave me. on the one wheel.
3: All right, go ahead. John and Lewis Let's are both out. holding their, their head in their hands right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so crusty. Do you do anything that's, like, new? Exactly, dude. Like, it. It's like you still, like,
0: on you like, you like, your TV. What, what's Damn going on with that? It. It's like their team hate machine over here. You know what I'm saying? It's like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this thing is utilitarian. It's sort of fun. And I can drag all of my kids' toys to the park. No worries with it. So
2: get it. Well, Max Blackburn, who's our sales rep and pretty well-known paddler from the Northwest, is at our factory this week. And he ran the Blackwater this morning with Jared Seiler. And Jared, and he showed up at IR like at noon, you know, like three hours late. Jared ran the shuttle to the Blackwater on a one wheel. and it took, wow. it took two hours because <laughs> he had to stop at a gas station and charge it for like an hour. <laughs> right? I will point out you can jog the shuttle to Blackwater in 30 minutes. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so. All right. I have to admit that's pretty Awesome, but <laughs> not super time effective.
0: There you have it, Hammer Hammer Factor issue twenty nine. I gotta come up with a name for this. I'm gonna call it Hate Machine because that's what we're dealing with here on the Hammer Factor. Oh,
2: you see now, look at you. Oh that's my
0: God, see it just keeps coming. We love you, Eric. Thanks for coming on the show. And Thank you for it. having me, guys. Really appreciate right. your insight on the whole slalom deal and uh.
3: Yeah, we'll have to. The offer still stands. If you want me to come back, just completely wasted, drunk, and just talk random stuff. Just, just give me a call.
2: Uh, we have a, we have a show segment for you. The one I pitched earlier. I, I still want to keep that idea alive.
3: <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll talk. You later. know what I'm talking about.
2: All right. Yeah. My, my people will talk to your people. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, that's it for the Hammer Factor. Be sure to send us your messages. Um, subscribe to hear more. And we always want to hear from you. We're out.